I'm Molly Moran, and this is the Table Wine Podcast. I am joined by my endearing colleague, Andy Stoiber. Hi, Molly. <laughs> Hi, Andy. <laughs> so we normally start with a little, like, how are you? Yeah. Wait, we're, I think we both know how we are right now. I feel like it's inappropriate to be like, it's so good, because it's not so good today. Can Why, Andy, tell it the people? We are recording on Thursday, 24th of February in the afternoon, and the news of Ukraine being invaded is the topic. And it's just a weird event to be living through and experiencing, you know, the biggest war-type thing in Europe since World War II. It's peculiar and unsettling. Yeah, I had all these things planned that I wanted to talk about with you. And then this morning I texted Andy and I was like, I'm a, an emotional mess and I'm not really sure how this is going to go. So thanks for bearing with us, everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're going to try. We're going to try to hold both things at the same time, right? Hold what's going on in Ukraine and also try to I don't know, be entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Have, yeah. Some, have some conversation. Um, That's what voices do. Yeah, Connor do. and I have a really dear friend who's in the State Department. She uh, was one of our bridesmaids. She's like a really good friend. And she has lived in some very interesting places over the years. And when she got placed in Kiev a couple of years ago, this was before the emails. This was before it, the whole thing. We were like... Why do you, why are you going to Ukraine? And she's like, oh, you don't even know. Like, you, you don't understand. She was like, Ukraine is the, the place. Like, it is going to be, all eyes are going to be on Ukraine. And we learned to say Kiev correctly. And so, anyway, so we have this friend and her husband and her children, and they live in Kiev. And it's hard to, we can't really communicate with her. We can communicate with her family, but her children were evacuated a while ago. Um, and so we did hear this morning that they have been safely evacuated. So that was good. a sigh of relief. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm just surreal. So. Cut through this cloud of despair. Let me. Let's, cut, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about how you were wrong and now you've seen the light. Oh yeah, completely. <laughs> I need to rectify this because last week Molly brought up the Trojan horse affair from Serial and New York Times now, which I've loved their previous stuff. I put on the first episode and I was working and I just like stopped paying attention. And I was like, okay, this isn't Sarah Koenig, you know, doing it. So I was like, maybe this isn't going to be that great. I had no idea what the episode was about. I came back to it, gave it a whole new listen. And I was like, oh, this is everything. I mean, I love education. It's really just so much of it is about the politics of schools and yeah. white supremacy shaping our school system. So I highly recommend. It's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. I, I just need that to be clear that I think it's I'm incredible. That, thank you. And though so it is interesting. I have like 20 minutes left of the last episode, I think. It mm -hmm. is a meandering. It, it goes in a lot of different places. Yeah. I think the first few episodes are the most like interesting. Like, yeah. Compelling. Yeah, yeah. Compelling. And then it sort of starts. It's like a meta look at what journalism is and what that like, what objectivity is, like all those. So I love it from a journalism perspective, too. Yeah, I never review podcasts, but now that we have our podcast and I know how important reviews are, P.S. reviews are super <laughs> important, y'all. <laughs> like really, really important. They they help us get seen by more people, I guess I should say. So I left a review on the Trojan Horse, not that they need it. They're the number one podcast in America, but I've, <laughs> I felt the need to like also give them my five stars. 
And I was reading the negative reviews because I was like, what's the beef that people have? And there were some people who I think, you know, whatever, they have concerns and I I guess I can understand them. But then there were these people who were like, they're too emotional. I don't want my journalists to talk about themselves. And I was like, that's the point of the story. Did you miss that part? So anyway, it's great reporting. It is. It's so good. It makes, I mean... They end up in like Australia at the end. And I'm like, what a lot. Like, it's just the most inspirational. Like, what a cool job. You're just like, you know, investigative journalism taking you across the world. I pictured us trying to crack a wine mystery. <laughs> like, I really was like, ooh, how can Andy and I become. Wait, I'm going like season three, our investigative. Because <laughs> we have so much extra time that we're like, mm-hmm. oh, I like Let's that. Solve a wine mystery. That would be. So, if you have any wine mysteries, let us know. Oh, there's got to be some big wine scandals out there that's just simmering under the surface. Well, there's like all those forging ones, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which, you know, I guess could be good, but I don't think we're equipped to take them. No. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Was Brian Reed equipped to take on? <laughs> I, I think so. I Probably. think he was trained. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> hey, I have a journalism degree, Molly. If you, <laughs> It's my best. And I know where to put commas because I have an English degree. Yeah, so. hey, I had to learn about commas, too. <laughs> uh-huh. So Okay, so in my filing away of things that happened over the course of the week that I was like, oh, that'd be fun to talk about. We had our first in-person class at Table Wine in two years. Oh, wow. And it was so great. I was really off my game. <laughs> if you guys don't know, I've been teaching virtual classes for the last two years. And the format that I use, I just talk at a screen. It's not Zoom, so I don't see anybody. Mm-hmm. And people leave me questions in the chat and stuff, right? But like, I can decide if I'm going to look at the chat. Whereas this was, I was looking into people's eyes and I got to like see their reactions. And it was, I mean, it was just, it was wonderful. It felt so good and joyful to be around a group of people. So That's that was a really good, good thing. I mean, that just reminds me, I think on the radio I heard, it's like socializing is a bigger factor for your longevity than if you smoke or not. Like the importance oh. of... Having a social life and feeling connected to people is so important. So the silver lining is buy some wine, bring it to your friends and catch up and it'll be good for you. Yes. <laughs> it can be hard to meet people that you haven't talked to for a couple of years. Like there are people that are now contacting me that I haven't talked to in years. And it's like, oh, it would be great to catch up. And maybe wine is the thing that I should. I mean, I always bring wine. So it is a nice conversation starter if you're afraid. <laughs> Yeah, because of the shop, like, I never stopped seeing people. So, you know, not that I haven't felt lonely, because I definitely have, but it's not the same, right? So it can be awkward. Conversations can be weird, and that's okay. And yeah. you'll get through it. Right? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Right? <laughs> I do think people are eager to socialize, and the wine shop is a great place to meet people and drink and hang out. It's true. It's a good, yep. good spot. And it's nice to have in-person events again. and remember that whole aspect of my business that I haven't done for two years so yeah yeah and now for our aperitif a little bit of fun knowledge to wet your palate coming up in this episode Andy and I are going to drink a wine that is from 2013 meaning that it has nine years of age on it and I thought it would be helpful to talk about what makes a wine worth aging so there are some key characteristics in wine that let you know that it would either benefit from some aging or at least be a good candidate to age it if you're interested in that. So you want a wine that is high in acidity. That's true for both reds and whites. So something that makes your mouth water quite a bit. 
with reds, something that is higher in tannin. So that astringent feeling, you know, when your mouth gets dried out, your tongue or your cheeks or even the back of your throat gets dried out, that's tannin. And so the higher tannin, the better for aging because tannins slowly break down over time and make the wine more interesting, add new aromas and things as that happens. So that can be a really interesting thing to check out. High alcohol wines, like fortified wines, like ports and Madeiras, things like that, they'll age forever. So you can honestly hold on to a bottle of good port forever. And then sweetness as well. And we will be drinking a dry Riesling later. But a sweet Riesling is really an ideal candidate for aging because it has both high acid and a good amount of residual sugar. And that kind of protects it from the oxidation or the bad parts of aging. One thing that I think is worth noting is that not every wine is meant to be aged. And in fact, most wines aren't. So the kinds of wines that I carry at my shop or that you're going to find at most wine shops aren't necessarily intended by the winemaker to be put in a wine fridge for 10 years or thrown in a basement for 20 years or something like that. So don't just grab any wine and think like, oh, yeah, this will be cool. I can do it. A wine that is not interesting or is not complex now is not going to get more complex over time. So you want to find a good wine, a quality wine, and something that has the characteristics that I talked about. One really cool thing, if you are into this idea, is to drink a wine now, see if it's something that you want to age, and then age it a year, five years, ten years. Get a couple bottles and try it over the course of time. It can be really an exciting experience, and you can really learn a lot about wine doing that. So that's what the fuss is about when it comes to people who sell their wines. And when I say cellar wines, you can have three wines in your basement. Just keep it cool, keep it dark, and see what you like. Shall Are we, we good? Yeah. Pop the cork. Shall, Shall we? <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. In this case, it's... Uh, what was that sound, listeners? If you could guess. <laughs> we need material. <laughs> Was that glass on glass? I think oh, it was. Yeah, there was a glass stopper for today's wine, but not just a glass stopper, correct, Molly? Correct. <laughs> it was a glass stopper under s- sort of a screw cap and then also under foil. So it was it was very protected. So later in this episode, we will be hearing from Justin Spaller of Chromatic, and he is one of the distributors that I work with at Table Wine who sells us wine. So he is going to kind of explain the process of how that wine that gets made in our first episode gets imported in our second episode. Now, how does it get to shops and restaurants? And that's Justin's role. So I asked Justin if he would pick one of his favorite wines for us to taste. So, yeah, because he talks about it at the end of his interview, kind of like what he's excited to be drinking. And in a lovely confluence, it's also imported by Stephen Bitteralf, who we spoke to last week from Von Boden. So it's just kind of all of our favorite things together now. Amazing. So, I mean, yeah. Justin is a sweetheart. I just want to give a shout out. <laughs> Justin has always He's been so great. generous about sharing wines when he can. And it's really appreciated. Well, he particularly loves you because you <laughs> sold so much of his wines <laughs> at Table Wine. You know, when you, when you left... When, when you left, he was like, wait, what? Andy doesn't work here anymore? Oh. Like, he was just like, um, and I was like, your sales aren't going to go down. It's going to be okay. <laughs> we still love you. And he was just like, oh, but Andy. And I was like, I know, I know. It's okay. Oh, 
good. Yeah. No. Yeah. His wines will sell itself. They should. They're great they, stuff. It's true. So this is Riesling from the Rheingau in Germany. The producer is J.B. Becker. And this is his 2013 Riesling Cabinet Trocken, meaning dry. And this is Valufer Valkenberg, which is the name of the vineyard. So I'll tell you a little bit more, but let's... This wine is so interesting that I just want to hear what you smell and taste, Andy. A lot. There's so much. Okay. Okay. Wax? Honey? Yeah, like beeswax. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. That's like those two things together. Beeswax. <laughs> that's what it would be. Thank you. <laughs> this is what Molly is for. She's genius. Yellow, black, stripes. <laughs> like, just describe. You weird. make me feel so smart. Like, I'm just like, look at me. <laughs> well, you're the, you're the expert. You're, you know more than I. So this oh is good. my God. I love it. This is learning in the making. It's happening live. <laughs> I know, right? Andy's face was just like, whoa, what's happening in my mouth right now? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unexpected. Wow. I, where'd it begin? I mean, it's unmistakably a Riesling. Like it is, I, I, you know, I'm trying to think other things that I could, if I was doing this blind, I think it were, but it has, say, viscosity. And I'm like, it does, that's, for right? sure. that's the word. Mm-hmm. A lot of structure. So it just yeah. sort of moves around your mouth like a wave. Yeah. I think it was when I first tasted this wine with Justin. I think it was him who threw out the tasting note of miso. Mm. And that really resonated with me on this wine. On the finish where I was like, that's it. It's like this salty, savory, umami thing that I was like, yeah, that is miso. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, this is great. This is. Uh, an example, I don't know, where I think someone drinking this will be surprised at what they're getting. Like, wow, this is a very different wine from... Yeah, this is a special wine. I don't think it's just for Tuesday night mindless consumption, right? Like, it is definitely a wine to to think about. Not that it wouldn't just be great with some food and whatever, but it feels like it kind of warrants a little attention. Oh, yeah. it's It demands to be thought of. Like, I feel like it develops a flavor and texture as it's in your mouth. And so you shouldn't yeah. be ch- not a chuggable wine. I mean, you can't. I mean, you could chug this, but you'd miss out, yeah. I think, on like 80% of its coolness. Yeah. For some reason, the analogy came to me of like a character actor versus a movie star versus mm-hmm. a great actor. I don't know. Like thinking about those three different things. This is like a... A Viola Davis of wine. Oh, oh, like, yeah. like I'm so complex and I can be kind of these different things. Like I can play these different roles, but really at the end of the day, you're gonna know that it's me and you're gonna care that it's like I'm the I'm the star here. So I love that. That's there we go, JB Becker, <laughs> the Viola Davis of wine. <laughs> I asked Justin why does he like JB Becker so much? And he was saying that he thinks what is drawing him to this particular producer is that he doesn't make wine like anybody else in the Rheingau. So the Rheingau is usually the fruitier, friendlier, somewhat sweeter versions of Riesling. Mm. And so the fact that he really focuses on dry Riesling, this is a 2013 I mentioned, but you know, if you stop and think about that, that's a really long time ago. Yeah, This is nine-year-old Riesling and this is the current release of this wine. Like, he's doing things his own way. 
And again, a plug for Stephen and his awesome website. If you go to vonboden.com, you can see pictures um, of the winemaker with his amazing mustache. And he clearly is a person who's like doing his thing and he just does not give an F about anybody else. So it's it's pretty great. There is no sugar in this wine at all. But it is that screaming acidity because if any of you do get your hands on a bottle of this, it does not taste like it is nine years old. Like it has tons of acidity, right? It is a very lively wine. So imagine what it tasted like nine years ago. <laughs> would it hurt Would it hurt your teeth? Probably, right? Oh, I like that Justin likes this and that he called this out. He shared it with us. I know. Um, Thank you, Justin. I want more people to drink it. <laughs> like, you know, this could be in more people's hands. Uh, yeah. If you do shop with us, this is not something I currently have on the shelf, but I'm happy to get it for you. I had it around the holidays. I did do it for, we have a wine club for people who cellar wines or just like niche wines, slightly more expensive than our normal price point. And I did give this bottle to a couple different people in that club. So I can get it, but it's not on the shelf right now. So the, the wines reminds me of is a American Chardonnay I've had from, I think, Winesmith, but it was like from 2004 and it's called like Chablis. And so it's like their attempt at making a Chablis style wine out of California and it was aged I don't think I and it was aged from like 2004 but it's like that same like there's clearly this correlation between the aging I think and the ultimate taste that it's like this no 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 oh, no, no keep keep going no keep going like I just or finish your thought it's such a strong beeswaxy thing that is really awesome that I've only gotten I think in that other wide and I'm like something about how aging is involved so the winemaker and importer both refer to these wines as being more Burgundian in style than German in style. And they talk about there being a similarity with these wines as to Chablis. And that's why I just kind of died when Andy started talking. I was like, what are, that's amazing. <laughs> there we go. But also so weird that you picked a California winery that's also trying to be reminiscent of Chablis. Like you didn't just say Chablis. Anyway, I think yeah. that's awesome. Great. So yeah. So yes, that is what this tastes like, right? Because you just got there. Yeah. So maybe someone have had that. They haven't had a Riesling like this, but yeah. I don't think you, I mean, many, I don't think you've had a wine like this. You people, <laughs> like, I don't think people have had wines like this, right? Like, I think that this is really a special, interesting wine. It is. Right? It is. Mm -hmm. And I think we say this all the time, but it's like, especially with Riesling, don't let yourself be boxed in about what you think Riesling is because... If you've had sweet Riesling, it's completely different than what this is. And even if you had dry Riesling, other dry Rieslings, like even that Australian Riesling we had in the first season, the tennis ball vibe, mm -hmm. completely different than this. I mean, what a flexible, yeah, back to your Viola Davis, can do it all, can play lots of different totally. characters. And, right? Wow. Yeah. Love it. Thank you. I'm, I'm sticking with it. That's my analogy now. Okay, it's time to decant. Let our subject breathe. <laughs> I told you I'm going to start saying that. I like time. it. No, I like it. Because let it breathe. It's a fun. Let it breathe. <laughs> so, <laughs> this week's interview, as I mentioned, is with a distributor so that you can hear his piece of this puzzle. He's one of the middlemen between you and the wine. It's interesting to kind of hear his, his story and how he goes about his side of the business. I think it's really interesting and one that I don't think that people spend a lot of time thinking about. So Justin Spaller and his wife, Anna, own Chromatic Wine, and they are based in Milwaukee. They are a two-person operation, quite small. Yeah. Right? 
So it's them and their two kids. And he started from the very ground up. I met him pretty early on when he first came to Madison. I think he'd been getting established in Milwaukee, but then he came to Madison and he had Jenny and Francois, one of the importers that he works with. And I had worked with them before. They used to be with a different distributor. And so I was very excited because I loved their wines and wanted to have them back at the shop. And so started working with Justin and now he's become a friend and he's just an all around really knowledgeable wine person. And I think that you guys will really enjoy the interview with him. Justin, we love you. Thanks for being here. It's more here. fun seeing you in person because you have wine to pour. And virtual is great to see you too, but. <laughs> you like it more when you see him? <laughs> Where's the wine, Justin? <laughs> this is one of my redeeming traits is that I always have a bag of wine with me, I suppose. <laughs> a bag? Okay, that's good. Not like a... No, I mean, a bag of yeah. bottles, you know. Not like you, Andy. He's not like taking the bag out of the box, <laughs> slapping the bag. For a moment, I was like, oh, Justin, there we go. <laughs> We're off to a great start. <laughs> yeah. So, Justin, tell us a little bit about how you got into the wine industry in the first place. Take us back in time. Uh, I was living in Milwaukee. And I was bartending. I mean, kind of got into the craft cocktail scene and sort of that was my entryway into the world of of, you know, wine, spirits, restaurant industry in, in general. And when I graduated school and decided that I was feeling very listless in, in uh, Milwaukee and wanted to do something different. So uh, a couple friends and I moved to New York and I landed at a restaurant in New York called Commerce Restaurant. It's in the West Village. It's a cool little French bistro, high volume, a lot of charm. Uh, and a really cool wine program that was led by a couple uh, people that I owe a lot of credit to. A guy named Matt Barswicks and a woman named Barbara Wong who were running the beverage program. And they kind of introduced me to to wine. You know, I admittedly didn't, wasn't able to tell the difference between different white wines. I said they all tasted the same to me. And they, you know, I remember very vividly having tasted a white Burgundy next to like a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand and being... Like, wow, that is incredibly different. Like there could not exist two more different things in the world. And I was, it was like fascinating from a, just a curiosity standpoint and being someone who likes cocktails and who likes flavor. Like I just, I went head first in and I just did a bunch of studying. How old were um, you at that time? Like when was this? So this was 2010, 2011. And I, I, you know, used my, my Midwestern work ethic and I worked real hard and I, uh, I was given an opportunity to kind of take over that beverage program once the two of them oh, cool. um, left, actually, which was very silly of the owners to do so because <laughs> I was very much not qualified for that. But it was, it was really where I cut my teeth and I got to meet, you know, sales reps in New York, build a, a wine by the glass program, build a bottle list, make a lot of mix mistakes, frankly, you yeah. know, and just kind of feel it out. And during that time, I just was definitely, I had imposter syndrome in a in a big way, and like, I know we all still have that, but it was a great place to just kind of learn it trial by fire. How long did it take for you starting out where you said all white wine tasted the same to becoming the head of the beverage program? Like, that's quite a trajectory. Yeah, it was a good year. I, I would say, yeah, like I was kind of the, the head bartender at that restaurant for about a year before I, they ended up giving me a shot as the beverage director. And in that year, of course, I'd spent all my money on wine yeah. because you have to, right? And I, I read as many books as I, I could, you know, Karen McNeil's Wine Bible, cover to cover. 
I was able to attend some of the distributor tastings and the portfolio tastings and kind of, yeah, I did a lot of work early on. That feels like the deep end of the pool to be in the New York wine scene. Yeah. <laughs> like to go from Milwaukee cocktails to New York wine feels like a jump. Yeah, it was a bit jarring. And hence the imposter syndrome, right? The, the, the cool thing about the New York wine market is that there it was everything, right? So much wine that you, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to try in, in Milwaukee. It was just available to, to taste and to kind of incorporate into our program. So that was a really cool opportunity. I was really curious, and I wrote this down, of the differences between New York and Wisconsin in terms of the wine world. And I guess to, like, stark contrasts or... Then, yeah, absolutely. But I think what's interesting, and this is happening, like, on a broader level and just sort of more generally as well, is that, like, the, the smaller cities are kind of catching up with the bigger cities in a way, because a lot of people are like myself and, and many others, like moving back from bigger cities, from the East Coast, to the West Coast, and kind of incorporating what they've learned and what they've discovered into their, their local communities and local cultures, right? So I, I feel like, yes, like New York is a bigger market than always will be. In a way, like Wisconsin is, is kind of catching up. And I, I feel kind of proud of Wisconsin for that, you know? You're part of that, man. Yeah, of, yeah. You are. You I really so. are. You genuinely are I part of so. us catching up. Okay, so you're in New York, then you what? You go to Boston? Yeah, uh, Anna and I, so my wife, Anna, who we got engaged in New York, we did a little traveling. We kind of took a year off, if you will, and then ended up in Boston. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of where I discovered natural wine, too, was, was Boston. Cool. Yeah. This is going to be a little bit of a jump shift so that we can talk about what it is specifically that you do, but then to give people kind of the broader knowledge because I don't think that everybody is aware of kind of how ridiculous all the people are in the, the process of getting wine from the person who makes it to into their glass. Um, can yeah. you just tell us briefly, uh, like, what does a distributor do? Yeah, it's a kind of basic process of, you know, acquiring wine from suppliers. Uh, the two suppliers that I get wine from are domestic producers, so mostly California winemakers, and then importers in all of the, the importers that I work with are, are East Coast or New York based. And so I purchase wine and there is a, a shipping company, specifically the, the one I use coming from the East Coast is called Osborne and Son, which is interesting because they're based in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and they send cheese to the East Coast and it goes to this massive warehousing complex called Fond du Lac, not to be confused with Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Um, but which is several buildings of many temperature controlled warehouses and, and the cheese kind of heads, heads to Fond du Lac and Fond du Lac is also this, uh, landing spot for nearly, nearly all, or at least most of the wine that is imported that comes to the United States ends up in this massive warehousing compound in New Jersey. And so that trucker Osborne, every Monday morning, I'll have a, a shipment coming from New Jersey and about eight, eight thirty, I go to my, my little warehouse in Bayview in Milwaukee. And a driver named Dolliver shows up, nice kind of salt of the earth guy. And he'll unload from his, you know, 53 footer, one to two pallets of wine. And I'll, it's usually, you know, mixed pallets. So many different producers and different wines on one pallet. And if you don't know what a pallet is, 56 cases of wine. Yeah. What do you mean? Like distributors speak, there's the pallet, there's the layer, there's, you know, the container, if you're that big. 
but yeah, so I, I kind of take apart these pallets of wine. I, I kind of put them in my pretty small little warehouse at this point, about a thousand square feet. And I, you know, I, I organize it. I, I send out my weekly email, which I kind of announced new arrivals, restocks. I send out a, a portfolio of wines that we carry and the email and my personal sales interactions are with wine shops, wine bars, slightly larger kind of liquor stores, restaurants, of course. So I am the supplier. I'm kind of the go-between or the, the middleman between the importer or the winemaker and the consumer facing retail places, restaurants, et cetera. But do you taste every, have you tasted every wine by the time it arrives on a pallet? No, <laughs> that <laughs> is one of the, that is one of the biggest challenges of, of being on this side. You know, you develop these relationships and especially in with the wines that I work with that are, are very limited, you need to kind of depend on the reputation of both the importer and the wineries that you're working with and kind of trust that they're going to be good enough to really stand behind. So that's, that's a part of kind of curating, you know, our suppliers is, is making sure that I feel comfortable buying blind from them because they're not going to send me a sample bottle if it's, if it's very limited and, you know, bigger markets would gladly take more than their share. I have to kind of say, yes, I'll take it. Like we have a, a relationship, my supplier and I have a relationship that says like, if I don't get wine from them, well, then I don't really have a company. So I kind of need to depend on them, you know? One of the things that I like best about working with you from really early on in our working relationship is that I could trust you. I think that we have somewhat similar palates. So when we are tasting wine together, so Justin comes and tastes me on wine once a week. And it, Andy used to be there for some of that too. So when Justin tastes me on the wine, often kind of like what he's saying jives with what I'm saying. So I feel like, okay, even if I haven't personally tasted the wine, if Justin's talking to me about it, I feel like I will probably feel similarly about it. And it's one thing that throughout the season, A, how do you build that trust? And B, kind of like, what does it feel like to have that trust? Or like, how do you keep that going? Well, I mean, you know, being honest, obviously, is, is a big part of it. And kind of going into it with the understanding that, you know, our relationship is not buyer-seller. Right. It is, but it's not because your success is kind of linked with my success. And in that way, we have the same goal. We have the same aim. We're more partners than we are a customer seller relationship. And knowing that, like, if you trust me, like that's ultimately going to be good in the long run for, for our company. And it's, it's not good for, for me to sell you something. And it's, it's, something that your customers aren't really going to appreciate and it sits on your shelf, it eats up your cash supply, like that's good for nobody. So like, it, it just makes more sense to, to work in a way that is, that is uh, mutually beneficial for, for us, but also for your, your business, your business's success is also part of our success. I am stunned by watching you specifically, because to give everybody a, a little bit of history, when I opened Table Wine, there were other distributors that I work with who I've had long-term relationships with, whereas Justin was someone that I met, you know, halfway through the current tenure of Table Wine, and I met you, and I was just like, okay, here's this guy from Milwaukee with all these natural wines. Let's, let's see what he's all about. And, you I know- I was so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> that first meeting, I felt, like, I felt like a used car salesman that first like week of starting this company. Oh my goodness. Yeah, okay, seriously. Like not just about me. Just like tell, tell us about that. Like cold calls, sales, the whole thing is terrifying to me. So, and I think Andy too. 
Tell us yeah. about tell us about that. So luckily I'll kind of, you know, answer your question incorrectly. Like luckily I actually had a few being from Milwaukee, I had a few people that I was friends with that I had connections with. But it's funny, like very quickly I realized that the people that I was friends with and I had connections with weren't necessarily like my biggest supporters in terms of the business that I was running, which is interesting. That might be a dynamic between Milwaukee and Madison. I think Madison was just in general, far more receptive to natural wine off the bat. Mm. And that's changing. Like there's, you know, obviously some great supporters that we have in Milwaukee now, but it was different. It was, it was definitely a, a different experience. Not what I was expecting. As far as like cold calling, like it sucks. <laughs> it's not fun, right? Like. You have to, you show up with your, your bag of wine and you, you ask very meekly, like, you know, like, I know we don't know each other. I know you already have established relationships. You feel like you're kind of prying into a pre-existing market and you're trying to, to show someone something. And in my case, kind of different than whatever everyone else was doing and, and convincing them, Hey, like this is going to work. I, I think you should, you should take this into serious consideration. What made it easy is that I really believed in the wines that I was showing. Right. Like I really felt good. Like, and I think hopefully you, obviously you can attest to that, that when we actually tasted through the lineup, there was something there, I think. And, and that's, what's so fun about natural wine is it's, it's striking, right? Like yeah. this from the packaging to the, to the flavor profile, to the stories of the producers, there's something different happening with natural wine that it felt great to be able to, to show that. And I have so many, <laughs> to, so much to unpack here. Uh, <laughs> Cause I feel like. And maybe I've just made up this memory, but like the reality is you come in cold calling, you come into a wine shop and places that sell wine, right? And you say, hey, I have wine that I think you would like to sell in this shop. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, it's not like there's magic behind the scenes. Like it really is this business, like these relationships that you have to establish. And I'm also thinking about the trust, A, between you and the retailers like Molly. But on the other side of things, and correct me if I'm wrong, you are representing these wines exclusively in Wisconsin, correct? Where the, the wines that you have here, you're the only person that is representing those wine labels. And so there has to be a lot of trust in that sense too. I just wanted to make sure that was clear is like how the distribution works is that you have the exclusive domain of these wines right. that you're selecting right. here. Yeah, there are, so there are many ways that wines come to the United States. And by that, I mean, there are just different importers. For example, one of our importers, Zevrovin, has a Loire Valley producer named Grosbois. And Grosbois is actually imported directly to the state of Wisconsin through Swiss sellers. So even though I could purchase that, that wine from our importer on the East Coast, the Swiss sellers kind of has the statewide rights. And funny enough, actually, I have a couple of different importers, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, where I can get the same wine. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I buy from basically who has the best price on it. But it doesn't matter how it gets to you. When you have it in the state, you have the right to kind of sell it in the state. And there's like complicated laws about how you can actually split the state by county if you wanted to. But the producers that I work with are, are small enough production that I don't really worry about someone kind of impeding on what I'm doing. Like there's just not enough wine. Like we get as much as we can possibly get. Are there states where that's not true, where multiple distributors could carry the same wine? Or is that a true? Do you know? It's okay if you don't. I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't really know. Okay. I know like sometimes it happens. Sometimes two different distributors show up with the same wine and yeah, uh, yeah I'm not sure if it's le legal. Okay. I know like some import portfolios are split 
Mm-hmm. Like in mm-hmm. Wisconsin, Kermit Lynch is split, yeah, between like Winebow and somebody else. Well, actually, here in Madison, they're split by at least three between at least no three, kidding. three wow. different distributors, which is kind of exhausting from my perspective. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like, so, like I'm like, who, so, wait, what Kermit, who, which Kermit Lynch exactly. distributor Exactly. So, so it's to? more about the, the label and the distributor in terms of the statewide representation and less about how it, again, less about how it gets to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I do think I, these details help me understand how you emerged, like how you came to be is because the natural wine market was happening on the East Coast where you were. Yeah. In Wisconsin. In Chicago, it was a thing earlier too, right? I think it was later here, but that you, because of the way the system is set up, there was this hole of a lack of natural wine in Wisconsin, right? And you filled that hole. So let's kind of rewind a little bit. Uh, when, when I was in Boston, I was the beverage director at a restaurant called Tasting Counter. It was a 10-course, ticket-only uh, dinner service. There's 20 seats around like a, a U-shaped counter and the, the chefs would actually cook very much like chef's table style, like right in front of you and plate everything right in front of you. And it was 10 courses and paired with 10 wines. And our chef was adamant about a natural wine, strictly a strictly natural wine uh, pairing program. And so that's kind of where I learned about all these natural wines. We had a constantly changing menu. The wines were constantly running out because it's very small production. And so I was, I was having to kind of discover new and different natural wines to kind of work with this menu format. And so that's kind of how I really got to know all of these importers. And it's, it's in Boston that I met Zev Rovain. It's in Boston that I met Shant from Le Lune and Populous, a California wine producer that we work with, where I met Matthew Rorick of Forlorn Hope, a California producer who does the Queen of the Sierra wines. And so it was really there that I kind of established the relationships with the importers that I currently work with here in Wisconsin. And kind of saw like how exciting natural wine was when I was in Boston. It wasn't just like our restaurant. It was, you know, wine bars and and retail places that were just exclusively natural wine. And it was very much a a fun culture. And like, there were a lot of people that were really into it. And like you said, like looking at distribution in Wisconsin and realizing that no one was representing Jenny and Francois selections and yet, you know, Jenny Lefcourt is a is a huge part of natural wine in this country since she's been, you know, she's been doing it for over 20 years. And just the fact that there was, that she didn't have representation in the Wisconsin and Wisconsin is not the biggest, but not the smallest market in the country. And so that was kind of, kind of silly. Right. And so Zev wasn't represented. Jenny wasn't represented. Jose Pastor selections wasn't represented. Van Boden. And I'm the podcasters can't see this, but I'm, I'm wearing my cabinet <laughs> truck and very nerdy Riesling shirt that I, that I got through a, a Von Bowden channel. And Selection Naturel is another importer that we work with that I, that are actually Boston based, that I got to establish connections with. So yeah, so I never actually thought I would get into distribution. Like I was kind of on, I was going to school and I was working at restaurants and I wasn't like, yeah, when I grow up, I'm going to be a, a wine distributor. I'm going to be a wholesaler. <laughs> That's, that sounds like an exciting career, but just kind of seeing that, and this is Anna and I, like this is very much both of us kind of having these conversations when we were in Boston and like talking about how it, we could really do it. You know, we, we, we could do it. We're kind of in a, a very unique position in that we have all these ties to Wisconsin. My family's in Wisconsin. Anna's family is just outside of Chicago. And also having all these connections to suppliers of natural wine, it just seemed like a natural <laughs> No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> a natural thing to a natural thing to to do is to start this little distribution company. 
also, you know, being a, a father or a new father in Boston and kind of wanting to get away from the restaurant hours, I, a career shift kind of seemed like a good way to go. So that's kind of, that was the impetus of, of starting the company, kind of coming back home and doing something different and use, doing something that I felt uniquely qualified to do. Yeah, I think that's also why I liked you right away because our sim our stories were decently similar in like uh, <laughs> yeah because well, you have these you have East Coast ties as well and yeah I'm from Pennsylvania but I was living in D.C. running a restaurant before I yeah. moved back to Madison and it took me a little while longer to circle back to wine but yes similarly I was like I want to have a kid but I don't want to do it here so <laughs> right right <laughs> let's change where we are yeah okay so we've talked a lot about natural wine without really talking about natural wine we want to know how you define natural wine first, and then also what it is that draws you to it, keeps you excited about natural wine. The biggest knock on natural wine is that people say, well, there is no definition and like it's this kind of loose, imperfect term and people throw it around when it actually means nothing. I think if you care enough about natural wine to define it, you can, and it's not very hard. I think the reason that uh, people don't want to define natural wine is because they're skeptical of it or because they're kind of entrenched with kind of more conventional wines because they're kind of more steeped into the traditional wine market and styles of wines. But how I define natural wine is with kind of three signposts. The first signpost being how the grapes are farmed, like what happens in the actual vineyard. You know, chemicals is like the first thing to make something not a natural wine, right? So obviously no use of pesticides or herbicides. So organic farming, long story short, is kind of a bare minimum. And then, of course, there are many producers that uh, and many farmers that work with biodynamic principles, of course. So, you know, harvesting when the moon is full, you know, having animals or having other vegetation growing nearby. So you kind of build this like healthy living system, you know, in the vineyard. And it's not so much uh, rows and rows of vines that are sprayed with chemicals to keep the bugs away. And then you harvest and you make wine, right? Um, so. That's number one, right? What happens in, in the vineyard. And number two is what happens, well, I guess two and three kind of happen in the winery itself. And the second one is kind of the crux. And this is kind of an interesting one. And that is no additions to kind of kick off the fermentation. So that is like no commercially bought yeast, no cultured yeast, letting the, the grape must ferment on its own spontaneously with the yeast that, that live in the air or live on the skins of the grapes. And of course, the yeast being the, the primary catalyst of like why wine comes to be and how it ferments. And then there's also the additions after that process, right? So a lot of more conventional, large scale winemakers will kind of adjust the way a wine tastes by adding a little sugar, adding a little alcohol, adding like powdered tannin, which is actually a thing you can do to, you can add to wine, right? And, you know, adding acid right? To make a wine taste a particular way. And a lot of these things are, would actually be considered organic. Like, you know, adding sugar to something like if it's organic sugar, like there's nothing, you know, there's, it doesn't seem unnatural, but it is affecting the way the wine uh, is made. So, so minimal additions. So the only allowed addition, and this is kind of signpost three, I guess, is, you know, at bottling, there is a little bit of SO2 added in some of the wines and that's sulfites. Right. And sulfites is a, a much bigger question, but briefly you can add sulfites at many points during the winemaking process. Sulfites kind of kill off like bacteria, any unwanted yeast or or thing like that. 
and it's used very effectively to make a quote unquote clean wine. In a natural winemaking, sulfites are allowed, but in very small amounts just at bottling. So just to kind of protect the wine as it's sent off into the world. But in many cases, you know, sulfites aren't even needed to, pr to preserve the wine. And often a wine is strong enough on its own merits to be bottled sans souffre or zero, zero or no added sulfites. And what makes you like natural wine? What is, what is it that? Oh, I think, yeah, I think like as a, as a restaurant person, as a, a sommelier that has worked with many different wines and worked with food, I think what's awesome about natural wine is that it tends to taste a little bit more like food. It tends to be a little bit more alive. And going back to in my time at Taste Encounter, when I had to pair 10 different wines with 10 different courses, that can get really redundant, right? Like you can imagine, okay, you start with sparkling wine and then you have five whites and then you have four reds, right? And like that can get a little redundant, even with different styles and different bodies of traditionally made white wine. It's all kind of, you know, in, in like a, a similar window, right? But with natural wines, what's fascinating is you can have a very clean mineral driven high acid white wine and then you could have something a little cloudier you know and a little more textured you can have a an orange wine so a skin macerated wine you know co-ferment so red grapes fermented with white grapes together so you have kind of a rosé but kind of a light red and then of course you have your fuller bodied reds and then you know different types of sparkling wines be it a traditional method champagne method of course petillant naturel or petnat and, all, and I've just listed all these different types of wines. And when you set it up and you pour someone and like people will do this at, at the, at the counter, they would keep all of their wines for many courses. And it would be kind of fun, actually annoying to work around. Cause there's like a, a wall of glasses, but you can see the different colors and kind of how the spectrum of what wine can be all kind of looks in a row. And I think that was such a, a fun part of natural wine for me personally, as a restaurant person and as a kind of a, a food and wine person. I love that image so much. Yeah, except when you knock one over. Oh, totally. And it makes, and it <laughs> or you're like, I'm trying to, I'm yeah. trying to get you your food. I, I feel yeah. your pain. Yeah, right. One other question that came to my mind during this, because I'm realizing this season is really a supply chain season and that's such a trendy thing. And I love the marketplace. How is supply chain issues affecting you right now? Are they? Y yes and no. Like, I feel like, thankfully, we're a small enough operation that I can kind of manage and be a little bit more flexible than, than larger companies that rely on big volume of stuff. Um, and I can be a little more nimble in terms of what we're bringing in and when there's definitely some issues. And this was, I feel like it was more of an issue over the summer where I remember one of our importers at one point had exactly like 13 cases of wine available for national distribution because everything was on the water and by on the water, I mean in a container on a, a big container ship waiting at the port, right? So that made it difficult. But for me, I was like, okay, I'll just order from somebody else for now and I'll come back to you when you have wine. So yeah, that, that has made it a little more tricky. I know like, like cans are becoming a little more expensive because of supply chain issues. So that's part of something that I have to deal with is like slightly increasing prices, which is no fun. I, I want to say that I, I've been really lucky during all these supply chain issues. And I think the wine industry as a whole has actually been not too terribly bit. I feel like the they, tariffs were almost harder or maybe equally hard, right? Yeah, I feel like the, the tariffs that, for those of you who don't remember, our former president enacted some tariffs that really hurt European wine importing for a little while. 
Yeah. And that was like, I think, scarier yeah. more than anything, right? Because it never actually happened. But there was always this threat of 100% tariffs on, on all the wines that we work with, which would, of course, just ruin our businesses, right? Like, there's no way people would pay $40 for a $20 bottle of wine. Like, I wouldn't. Um, that was pre-COVID also. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> like yeah. It was, you know, it was a different world. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Another world, right? Yeah. Problems seem so big, but really they I know, weren't. and really they weren't. It was just wine. Yeah. <laughs> well, so maybe it goes, yeah, naturally with the next question of like the wine world, like any world area has challenges and interesting things happening. How do you become ahead of the curve? And how do you factor in what taste is, what popular taste is, what you think people are wanting to drink, what you want to drink, what you think people will want to drink in a year from now? It seems like so abstract, but yeah, the bread and butter. Yeah, right. It, that definitely plays into kind of all of my decisions in terms of like purchasing and what to show people is, you know, yes, I could be really excited about this wine, but if it doesn't sell, it's a, it's almost like, so what, you know, like my, my job as a business is to bring in wines that move, right? Not just wines that I want to keep in my cellar personally and just enjoy my, myself because I have a certain taste. But I do think like just being patient, I mean, just beating the drum and just saying like, hey, like these wines are great. Like, and just give it a chance and just slowly but surely. And I think it's definitely kind of come to fruition in a lot of ways that we've seen a lot of people really embrace these wines, even if it's from grapes they've never heard of, from places they've never heard of. And it, it doesn't exactly fit the mold of your white wine or your red wine. And, you know, obviously finding great partners because as a... As a distributor, and this is something that I really miss about being in, in the restaurant world is I'm not able to, to see someone enjoy the wine. And, and there's nothing like, like being at a restaurant and literally watching the person that you just poured wine for, put it to their, to their lips and taste the wine. And you get that immediate confirmation or maybe like, oh, they don't really like that one. You know, <laughs> like I, I'm really kind of leaning on the, the people like, like Molly and other people in the industry to work with me and, and kind of give me feedback about how things are going because I, I don't have that, you know, I don't have that, that direct connection with the consumer anymore. Well, speaking of things that you might put in your personal cellar or, you know, buy just because you like them, what are you loving drinking right now? It can be a specific wine or just kind of style of wine, but like, what are you excited about having Yeah, I mean, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, I'm going to use the answer that I feel like a lot of like wine professionals use, and it's a bit of a cop-out, but it's becoming so true lately for me. Uh, and that's Riesling. <laughs> I absolutely I knew love it. I knew Riesling. It. <laughs> I, I'm wearing a shirt that says cabinet trucking, right? <laughs> it's just so nerdy, I know. But, <laughs> but no, I mean, I think for people who taste wine so much and I just kind of are just completely engrossed in the world of wine, there's something incredibly refreshing about a really precise, screaming high acid, like tastes like rocks, white wine, right? It's just, it's, it's refreshing. It's compelling. It's got this like coiled tension to it often. And it's kind of, it feels a bit of like, if you know, you know, kind of thing. Like there's something interesting about how the, the greater market doesn't really care too much about Riesling. Often people will say, well, it's, it's sweet. Right. But I think wine people in the know like really like appreciate sweet Rieslings but also really love dry Rieslings and it's a wine drinker's kind of wine and I think I'm having a Riesling moment and you know it wasn't always like that and I've 
Yeah, I was really into orange wines, obviously, for a while being a natural wine person. You know, co-ferments over the summer. So like those really hazy white red blends that have just tons of fruit and herbs and things like that. But at the moment, it's Riesling. That's great. That's beautiful. Yes, I love it. <laughs> so much to say about that, but I'll hold that for later. Thank you so much. Excellent. Yeah, thanks for explaining every all of it. You know? Yeah, no, this so, is educational. So, so the best way. So that was our talk with Justin. We really are so appreciative of him. He is so responsible for my foray into natural wine, at least. Like, because that's all he does, it was this, you know, unadulterated, you're drinking natural wine and I'm coming to the shop and tasting you on wines, which was really exciting. And he's just a good person. It's a small business. I mean, he's it's a lean operation. He's built it from the ground up. and. I am grateful for him for doing that because he really brought so much great natural wine to Wisconsin. That was a for. So thank you, Justin. I think that was a good piece of the puzzle. It's coming together. Yep. The puzzle's coming together. It is time now for our nightcap, Molly. And hey, Andy. <laughs> Oh, we could use a dr- strong drink. <laughs> yeah, I need some whiskey. Can we have whiskey for our nightcap today? Yeah, we should maybe do that. That would be fun. At 2.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> today, I would be happy to. But I have a question. Really, I just want us to focus on something that brings us some solace or joy in these times. And so I'm just curious what you might be relying on for comfort, like your, you know, comfort food of maybe it is comfort food, maybe if, oh, bread pudding. I would love some bread pudding right now, but I am curious what you are relying on. And I'll say first that I'm watching the office straight through. Like hmm. I've been finding myself just wanting to watch comfort television and the office is something I've watched growing up when it was first coming out. And then I stopped watching and it's been really nice to go back to. And Steve Carell is a genius, as are many of the characters on that show are so good. And I'm just thankful for it because I feel like it took me a while. People have been talking about binge watching The Office over and over for like the past few years. And now I'm like, oh, I get it. I get why people are so obsessed with this show. It's funny that you asked this question because this morning, as we were waiting to hear news from our friend who's in Kiev, who was in Kiev, I remembered that my life coach that I worked with had me kind of draw this like self-kindness map because often one of the things I was struggling with was like I didn't count things I didn't like oh well that's not self-care or like oh that's not that doesn't matter I would always I would very much dismiss those things and so she made me like write these things down so that I can in moments like this think about what's the thing that I could go do right now that would would help it's not going to make everything better it's not going to like make the war stop but it's going to help. And so this morning I said to Connor, hey, over lunch, do you want to watch Ted Lasso? And so we watched an amazing episode of Ted Lasso and we randomly picked the episode and then it was a particularly good one. And so um, so that's one of my comfort things. Later, I'll go to spin class and I'll get, fill my body with endorphins and uh, try to try to feel better. I try not to use food. Uh, for comfort <laughs> and i try not to drink too much those are my <laughs> so it's hard <laughs> you know, those are my things yeah that's good uh, yeah other than the office do you have a thing um 
Oh well, you're allowed to have. You're allowed for it to like, be food. It, oh no, I actually it's not. I mean, I've been eating toast a lot. I don't know that. I love mm. buttered toast, and we have a lot of yeah. good bread around here. I mean, <laughs> along with the office, and this is a lot due to Axel, my partner. A lot of RuPaul's Drag Race, which is oh. great escapist television, and those people are brilliant, amazing performers, and it's like its own metaverse where I was like. There's so much going on between C. Yeah. So that's been good. And I will say I did get a bench, a bench, what is the, a bench and rack for weightlifting. Wow. Um, and so that's been good. I'm finally trying to, I, I feel that like need to get energy out and I don't want to go to the gym, but I'm happy to do it in my basement, but I need more weights. I currently have very few weights to put on. Yeah. <laughs> But it's been good, and I'm excited for more of that. That's um, good. Exercise is good. Yeah, exercise <laughs> is good. It is, and the pandemic really put an end to it for me. I was like, look, I was like, ooh, happy to not exercise, and I'm like, oh, I need, I need it, I need something. If you really need a self care day, this is what I recommend. I went to King Spa outside Chicago over the weekend, and I just needed a sauna. I needed to sweat mm. out some toxic energy and it really helped and i was like googling steam saunas around madison and they don't exist which is absurd but i and i know someone who's going this weekend to the spot like it is a great unplug take care of yourself just sit in like pools and saunas and it's a great self-care thing to do when we were in portland this summer we went to this soaking pool did i tell you about I this i think so if you can kind of imagine just a really large hot tub, we went to this soaking pool and we just like, you just like sit in this hot water for an hour and it was absolutely magical. And then our friends who live in Portland told us that they go every Christmas Eve because no one's staying at the hotel. And so you, they go and it's outside and they were like, oh, one Christmas Eve, we sat in here while it snowed. Oh. Sounds like a good business idea. We're going to start an investigative journalism piece on wine and yes. maybe create a sauna, large hot tub thing. It's going to be March in a week. Oh, my gosh. Time is flying by. Time is flying. I know. Time is flying. Um, it's almost It's almost spring. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. It's coming and it's <laughs> I know, coming. I, know. I got too excited. And then there was that squall. Like everything, you know, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> like eight more inches next week. <laughs> stop okay okay on that note on that uh, note we're leaving you on that note chin chin <laughs> chin, chin chin andy chin chin thank you the table wine podcast is brought to you by me andy stoiber and molly moran special thanks to craig ely for his production consultation if you're enjoying what we're doing here and want to support us you can do so at tablewinemadison.com slash podcast and as always, please review, rate, like, subscribe, and share. Thanks for listening. Hope you tune in again soon.